0: Okay, everybody. Sorry I'm late here tonight. But I'm going to try to make it up to you by actually getting done early tonight. So, <clears throat> all right. Um, Very cool. Excellent, uh, Arthur says in the chat room. They're all uh, having fun anticipating Mythmoot, which many of you will attend. So glad to get to see a bunch of you at Mythmoot. That is going to be so much fun. Uh, Mythmoot is, you know, the, our... Uh, MythMood has just been, you know, it's been an institution for a while. This is our fifth one, of course, extending back now. Goodness, first one was maybe eight years ago now. Um, but uh, boy, how MythMood has uh, has grown over the years! Uh, it has really become a, a just not just an awesome opportunity to see people, which it always has been, um, but has been become just a really wonderful conference as time has gone on. All right. Um, so, welcome, everybody. Sorry I'm late tonight. I had a whole bunch of things piling in on me here. Um, but, oh, you're discussing the masquerade. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't fully decided what I'm going to go to the masquerade ball as this year. I went as Boethius last year, uh, which was, (laughs) which was fun. (laughs) Most people guessed it, too, when I came in in my tunic and I had my hands all tied up in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in ropes, um, so most people guessed that I was I was Boethius in Bonds. That was fun. Um though I had to I had to, I had to unfetter myself in order to dance. Uh but that was good. <laughs> I should go as Tom Bombadil. Uh, I don't have the right color boots. Uh but uh anyway, yeah. Um uh <laughs> anyhow, so like I said, I still haven't fully decided yet what I'm gonna do this year. Uh but uh but we'll see. Anyhow, um so thanks everybody for joining me tonight. Um, tonight, I, as I say, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that um, I'm actually gonna. We're, we're gonna have a sort of a shorter class tonight. We'll see how that goes. Uh, in which case, I'll, I'll make up for being late. A um, couple quick announcements. First, I wanted to. Um, uh, uh, the first thing I wanted to uh, uh, emphasize, you guys, uh, people should have received an email, but it is time. We're coming into the home stretch, right? I mean, my uh, my my bookmark is a significant percentage of the way through this book now. Uh, Where and it and it's looking shockingly, it's looking like. A note notice, I'm staying on schedule, right? We're still on schedule uh, for May twenty third, so I think we're actually going to finish the War of the Ring by the day before MythMoot starts, which was the projected plan. So, I. Uh, in which case, we're going to need another book to talk about as soon as July, basically. We're going to need another uh, book. So it's time for elections again. Or rather, I should say, it's time for nominations again first. So I know the email went out, I think, today to invite uh, our wonderful electorate uh, to nominate uh, books. We're nominating two books Um and uh, only one of them can be by Tolkien, because that's the rule. We do a Tolkien and a non-Tolkien. So uh, uh, we will see... Um, we will see... that because uh, <laughs> the, the, the Tolkien book has not been a very surprising election for the last uh, several years, as uh, the electorate has persistently march- continued our march through the history of Middle-earth, and it's kind of hard for me to see us getting away from that at this point. So uh, I'm... Uh, I'm guessing that Sound Defeated has a fairly good shot. But of course the other one uh is uh uh is is up for uh up for grabs is uh is is the real question. You know, will uh uh will one of our frequent nominees finally make it through? You know, will uh one of our bridesmaids finally make it to the altar, like uh Hitchhiker's Guide, which has been a finalist like three or four times. Um Anyway, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities. Um, but anyway, so we'll see. I'm always excited to see what you guys come up with. Uh, you guys have been a wonderful guide. Uh, I have uh, very much enjoyed all of the adventures that we have had, both when you guys have uh, so delightfully chosen some of my favorite books in the world and also when you guys have chosen some things that I wouldn't have guessed and wouldn't have uh, done myself, so... We'll see what happens, but anyway, that that uh, that exciting and adventurous period is upon us again. Um, but um, anyway, so all right. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing to to keep in mind as we, uh, there's MythMoot, of course, as I mentioned, and registration deadline is coming up. The registration deadline for that is the end of May. So we're only like a week and a half out from the registration deadline. So if you want to come to MythMoot, uh, time is running short and I strongly recommend, uh, that you come if you possibly can. Uh, the other thing is, um, also in, there's about a month left uh, to submit a paper. If you want to come to Baymoot, to the Northern California regional gathering that we're doing on August 18th in Oakland, California, um, there's a call for papers on the page. So if you get, where's the page? Where did, What did I do with the page? I had the page somewhere. That's not the page. Where did, there it is. Oh, that's not the right page either. Um, but this will do. So let's go back to here for a second. So if you go to the Signum homepage and you scroll down a little bit, here's our Baymoot page uh, and you can go, here's the email address that you should send um, abstracts to. If you have an idea for something to talk about that you'd love to see us discuss here in uh, uh, in 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 Baymoot, it's uh, uh, pretty cool. So this is going to be a, a, a fun local gathering. Uh, so I wanted to definitely draw the call for papers to your attention here, uh, cause we're, uh, that's, that's, uh, starting to come nearer, but if we go back to the events page here for a second, um, okay, this, I wanted to draw attention here too. this is tomorrow, tomorrow, Tom Shippey, we're going to have a, a round table discussion with Tom Shippey, uh, on his forthcoming book, Laughing Shall I Die, Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings, um, and uh, so just to, to to recommend that we're going to have Tom Shippey and he's going to be joined by several of our uh, Signum Germanic Philology uh, folks who are going to be uh, talking with him about uh, Vikings and Old Norse and his book and stuff. So uh, just a wonderful opportunity anytime that you get to hear from Tom Shippey is a wonderful opportunity, which reminds me to point out that... Um, that Tom Shippey is going to be virtually attending Mithmoot this year. After all, uh, this is sort of a late uh, but very exciting addition to our program. We can't get Tom in person. Uh, He couldn't make the flight uh, over the Atlantic, but... Um, he's going to join us virtually for a live talk that he's going to give. So those people who are there, uh, at the, um, at MythMoot Live will be able to, 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 you know, ask questions of Tom and, uh, have some, uh, an interactive session with him in a, in a talk that he's going to give. We will have recordings of Tom's talk afterwards, but, um, but, uh, people who are there will be able, as I say, to, to ask questions and interact with him, which is always fun. Um, So, uh, but anyway, you can, you can, uh, hear, uh, his, uh, symposium here. This is part of our signum symposium series. Uh, and, uh, uh, so definitely, uh, uh, plan to join us for that 2 PM Eastern time tomorrow, Thursday, May 24th. All right. Um, and the other thing, this thing that the page was on originally, our summer camps, uh, don't, uh, don't, i mentioned this a while back, but I haven't mentioned it in a while. Um, Awesome opportunity for you know if, if there are if there are kids in your life you know like middle school aged age you know ten to fourteen around there specifically is where what these camps are targeted at. Um, we really want to provide as many kids as we can with the opportunity to read and discuss awesome books this summer. So we have four different camps. We have our Hobbit camp, like we did last year, but we also have uh, this year our Harry Potter camp, reading the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone, if you happen to be British. And uh, we have the um, uh, the, uh, Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Madeline Langles *Wrinkle in Time*, so we have four different camps uh, from this year, and uh, there, as you can see, the dates are here, so they're kind of staggered, so that uh, you know kids can participate in more than one if they want to. Um, I strongly recommend um, that uh, you. Get involved if you can. The best way to get involved, we're partnering with local libraries to run this sort of hybrid program uh, that we're running. Um, go to your local library, tell them about our program, you know, direct them to this page, which is just signumuniversity.org slash academy. Um... And, uh, uh, and, you know, just kind of tell them about this program. It's completely free for libraries. It's completely free for, for kids. Um, and there's a lot of information on this page about how this works and how the libraries, uh, you know, how, how to set up a, a reading camp, uh, local group and all that stuff. So um, you can see all the things, you know, some, uh, our, our FAQ page, right. As we go down here. Uh, so all of this is, uh, uh is, is great information. So definitely go and talk to your libraries. See if, uh, if anyone is interested in doing this, if they are, uh, send us an email that is you send us an email. Uh, of course you encourage them to send us an email too, but if you talk to your local library or your local, you know, homeschool co-op or whatever, and you've got people who are interested in one of these camps, just send us an email, click this link here, this We'll get you directly to our email, which is just camp at signumu.org. Send us an email to our camp address and uh, we'll follow up. You know, we'd be happy to do that. Um, So anyway, just just let us know. We want to get as many kids involved as possible because that's awesome. All right. So those are the things that are happening right now. Lots of exciting things happening in Signum World. But let's get back to the War of the Ring, because that is also an awesome thing that is happening. Tonight's class is called Aragorn Transformed. It is fascinating to see how much Aragorn has grown, right? Um, One of the things that we were tracking from the beginning, back from the Trotter days, right, was not just when was Trotter going to cease to wear wooden shoes, but what, even once Trotter became a man and became a dunadine, you know became you know a Numenorian, um, it was it was not immediate, right? The, the, the whole return of the king trajectory of the story was not automatic right that's not something that was part of the story from the very beginning we saw even when he was even when the story was projected to include Aragorn going to Minas Tirith and getting voted in as king basically when when the lord of minas tirith died um it still was not clear that you know the return of the king was a primary story motive, right? I mean, that it seemed, it, it, that part of the story seemed as much as any, uh, to be about the kind of the the drama and the conflict with Boromir as much as anything else, right? Um, and of course, the whole history of the Numenorians and the... Uh, people of Minas Tirith, right, was very fraught and, and kind of complicated um, with the whole, you know, it's not the the line of the king appeared to die out, but rather that they booted them out, remember. Um, so, although Aragorn was always headed towards Minas Tirith, it wasn't a major focus. That's It's a part of the story that seemed to have grown kind of late. It's one of the things that I would point to um, as you know when when we look at this gap right this two year gap this you know gap from nineteen forty four to nineteen forty six when he set the book aside and then came back to it here and started uh, again to write book five there are several things that have clearly been kind of percolating in the meantime and that's what we were really focused on last time looking at some of those new things and how the story has developed and all the things that have uh, that have come up uh, since then with things which were decidedly absent in those early outlines about book five, which was of course the last book, uh, in, in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, a lot of things which weren't there yet, which there was no whiff of them yet. Right. And now which suddenly have kind of blossomed in the time that Tolkien has been away on my short list of things is Aragorn, right? Gandalf's transformation from Gandalf, the gray to Gandalf, the white, and even, in in a sense, the even larger transformation uh, of Gandalf from, you know, the little old man who is a professional wizard, right, in The Hobbit, to, you know, the uh, remarkable figure that we saw, even in those 1944 outlines, right, the one who stands at the Black Gate and taunts Sauron, right, Um that transformation had already happened, right? Gandalf had already assumed a stature at least as high as the stature that he was going to, that he achieves right in the published text. But Aragorn was still not really there. He was getting there, right? Um, he was involved, you know, he, when, uh, he finally got the nod over Aemir, right? As the one to do the southward swing, um, uh, it, we, um, Yeah, so um, once he won out over Eamir and that decision of whom to send south, uh, he began to kind of settle in there. But the significance of that, right, and the way that that has increased. And he's not just the guy who's going to become the leader in Gondor, right? The way in which you know, portent and sign and prophecy and anticipation is now all centered around Aragorn. Um, that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, these, uh, the, the, you know, we're doing the chapter, which is in which Tolkien is still trying to do the muster in Dunharrow and the passing of the Grey Company, essentially, at the same time. Um, though he doesn't seem to be narrating the whole trip down south, um, Down to the Stone of Erech, just their arrival in Dunharrow. But anyway, um, the stuff that Christopher Tolkien gives us really focuses chiefly on Aragorn, and that seems to me to be a very remarkable thing. But before we get too much further in talking about that... um, (laughs) <laughs> James Oakley says good because we haven't discussed Aragorn in so long. I know, right? Uh, having come so close to finishing the Strider chapter and exploring the Lord of the Rings, we've been uh, doing a very deep dive on Aragorn's character uh, already, it seems, for a long time. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, it's uh, it's different. This is different. Um, but before that, I, I got an email today uh, uh, from uh, uh, from one of you guys, from, from a viewer, and I really wanted to. to it, this it asked a, a brilliant question, which I should have thought of myself to talk about, but I haven't been talking about, and we should. So, it's about the new Gollum. Uh, so Greg Nations says, I've been following along in the War of the Ring discussion, and now that we're in the material Tolkien wrote in 1946, we've passed that 1944 period when he decided to rewrite The Hobbit Chapter 5. I don't know if you're going to talk about this tonight during the lecture, or well, I wasn't, but I am now, uh, but I'd be interested in my thoughts about why Tolkien decided it was better to rewrite that chapter, as opposed to retconning Gollum's character in The War of the Rings. I've also taken your class on the story of the Hobbit, and in it you mentioned Tolkien most likely rewriting Chapter 5 when he was writing the Shelob material. However, I didn't see that moment in the text when Tolkien decided to do this. I could see where he struggled with the best way to tell the story of Shelob's lair, and the ending with Frodo being taken by the orcs and Sam being shut out, but I didn't see any struggle Tolkien had with Gollum's character is it something Christopher simply doesn't emphasize had Tolkien been struggling with the depiction of Gollum's character in The Lord of the Rings versus The Hobbit before this chapter and I just missed it really really great question um okay so first of all Greg I absolutely agree I haven't seen it either, right? If you think back to like that moment that I made such a big deal of, which you know it, it was, it really struck me so forcefully this last time too, through in the Return of the Shadow, um, that moment when uh, when Trotter says, "I will, say, I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel, right? That uh, you know, that sort of flashbulb, not just flashbulb, That's way too small. You know, that 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 thunderclap, lightning flash moment, where we can see that dividing wall come down between his mythology and his new story. Um, I also have not noticed... I was kind of looking for a similarly dramatic moment, right? When he's talking about Gollum and he realizes, okay, the hobbit Gollum has to go, right? This is not going to work anymore. Um, You know, where he... Just as in the you know in the early stages of the Return of the Shadow, he's still uh, working in Hobbit mode, right? He, as far as the Silmarillion stuff is concerned, he's still recycling. He's still doing this totally separate thing, and then he he makes the decision. Okay, no, I'm changing course. I'm gonna go a, a, a different way here. I'm gonna bring the two of them together. I, I didn't. I also haven't seen a moment that I could point to where he's like, okay, um, Gollum is the same Gollum as The Hobbit that is the first edition of The Hobbit. Um, Gollum is consistent Gollum. Okay, I'm going to change Gollum and make him into a different thing. I also haven't noticed that moment. So there, there are two things that I would say about this. First of all, I think it's, first of all, concerning the timing. It is true that it is in this period of time that he rewrites the Gollum chapter, like chapter five of The Hobbit, but I don't myself place too much significance on um, on that the timing of that moment. That is to say, I don't. I. Based on what we know of how the replacement Chapter 5 came about, I don't think that the writing of that chapter represents the, like, aha moment, right? Or that it was done in response to an aha moment about Gollum's character, right? Um, I don't think that that's the point. I think that um, he had already had that epiphany. I think that the, the realization that the old Gollum as it was written in the first edition, is not going to serve, I think that that realization comes pretty early. So early that we don't see that moment, right? Way back in the ancient history stuff, um, you know, back in the first versions of Fellowship of the Ring, chapter 2, when we finally get that, the the story that Gandalf is already telling about Gollum is not consistent with what we get from the narrator in uh, chapter five of the first edition of the Hobbit. So I think that almost as soon as, and so, and, and, and you'll recall the sequence of that, right? Um, Rough, uh, just reminder for those, and, and, you know, to, to, and and a little brief summary for those of you who didn't do the Return of the Shadow with us. He starts writing chapter one, The Long Expected Party, and it goes straight into a version, essentially, of, uh, of Three as Company. It doesn't have, the, the ancient history chapter isn't there at all, the the shadow of the past, not, not, not present. It's just the long expected party, which is always the opening, and then off on an adventure, right? And then often we're crossing the Shire. Um, so he'd been trying to work that out and figure out who the protagonist was and everything. And it wasn't when the Black Rider shows up on the road, that's when things get real. Right And that's not only the moment where all of a sudden the adventure takes this different direction that's also the moment because when he was asking himself the question, "Who is this guy right? who is this rider in black on a black horse that has just shown up you know and uh you know scared the pants off of poor bingo baggins?" his answer to the question was it's a ring wraith right it is uh, it is a creature that has been dominated by the rings, and that is what. So it's figuring out what this black rider was that led him to the realization that the ring that Bilbo had was the ring of power, right? So Bilbo's magic invisibility ring um uh uh Bilbo's magic invisibility ring was um through this transformed into the ring of power. And he gets as far you know he gets as far up as the conversation with Gildor talking about it. Um, and that's what stimulates a bunch of the ancient history stuff, and that's when he goes back and starts rewriting the chapter, originally called Ancient History and then later called Shadow in the Past. So, uh, the Shadow of the Past. So, I think from right away there, I mean, as soon as he goes back, as soon as the concept of the ring changes, as soon as the ring becomes the ring of power and has the effects that it, uh, that it will, you know, always have, um, and you know, we get the whole it turns you into a wraith if you possess it for too long and all that kind of thing. Um, once that concept enters, which again is pretty close there, the Gollum story, as it emerges and becomes part of that conversation with Gandalf, which he goes back and writes at this point, or you know, drafts the first versions of, it's it's there's not a transition, right? I, I, I don't see any he's still operating within the old golem, you know, consistent with the old Gollum and then it changed, it's changed from the beginning, I think as soon as the ring changes Gollum has changed um, and you know, that kind of develops the question about chapter 5 the alteration of chapter 5 didn't happen it's not, it wasn't motivated by something that was happening in the Lord of the Rings it was motivated by a revision of the Hobbit right? It was time to re- release a new edition of The Hobbit. And he knowing, feeling already very strong, very strongly, that um, you know, in an ideal world, like that, like basically the way that Gollum was depicted in, in the original Hobbit no longer is going to fly, right? That's not what how Gollum would really act in this new world with the new ring as the ring of power and stuff. He had this kind of Fantasy, right, about how uh, book or chapter five could be redone, right? So he writes this new version, not thinking it was going to get published. He sent it to his, um, as a kind of, you know, flyer. You know, he sends it to the publisher to say, What do you think of this? You know, do you think something like this would work? You know, this is, uh, I just wanted to, you know, I just kind of tossed this off and I want to run it past you. uh because you know this would be more consistent with the new but and he didn't know it was going to be and the publisher just includes it in the second edition and he sees it and then when the new edition comes out he sees it and he's like holy cow i didn't know you were going to include that um anyway my point is i think that the go- the ch- gollum changes with the ring and and the new gollum is the, is the new gollum almost all the way through. I mean, it seems to me that the re- If I had to look at the important moments for Gollum's character, um, I agree that the Shelob chapter, you know, the Ungoliant chapter, that, I think, is not the crucial moment for the development of Gollum. I mean, the two places where I would go to look at where, where does Gollum become the new Gollum, the Gollum of the Lord of the Rings, you know. Um, it's chapter two, right? Gandalf telling his story. That's the first place. And the second place is the Taming of Smeagol chapter. Um, And especially looking at the way that he, um, that Tolkien is kind of experimenting with not just how is, does, is Gollum kind of related to the Ring of Power, but how does Frodo relate to him, right? How does Frodo as ring bearer interact with him when Frodo has the ring and is willing to use the ring against Gollum, essentially, um, to daunt him with it, remember. Um, Of which, you know, and Tolkien kind of made a big deal of that when Frodo acted that way. Those things, um, that's what sets up the end, right? You know, it's the Taming of Smeagol sequence. um, And this was made, I think, pretty clear in the drafts of this that we were looking at back in The Treason of Isengard. Um, It's the Taming of Smeagol sequence, that sets up what happens at the cracks of doom. And it's, um, you know, that chapter two stuff, Gan- Gandalf's story about Gollum, which introduces the new Gollum and sets the stage with the new Gollum. Um, um, but the, sort of the heart of Gollum's role in the story of the Lord of the Rings emerges from those, those first moments in the Taming of Smeagol. But, but again, I don't, think, I don't think we ever see him. We never see the old Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. I don't think ever. We don't ever see it, because it's changed already before we meet him. It's already changed. Um, Anyway, so, but I'm really glad. Greg, thank you so much for bringing that up. I had uh, thought about talking about that, but I'd lost track of it and forgot about it, so thank you so much for reminding me uh, to talk about that. All right, now we're going to move forward and be done early. Really, seriously. It's totally going to happen. Okay, so... Aragorn. Back to Aragorn, uh, post the, uh, drowning of Isengard and the confrontation with Saruman. Okay. The night was old and the east gray when they came at last to the Hornburg and there rested. Rangers say that messages reached them through Rivendell. They suppose Gandalf or Galadriel or both? Merry sat at the king's side in Hornburg, regrets that Pippin was away. They prepare to ride by secret ways to Dunharrow. Aragorn does not sleep, but becomes restless. Takes the Orthonk Stone to the Tower of the Hornburg and looks in it. He comes out of the chamber looking very weary, and will say naught, but goes to sleep till evening. There is evil news, he said. The Black Fleet is drawing near to Umbar. That will disturb councils. I fear we must part, Eamir, to meet again later. But not yet. How long will it take to Dunharrow? Two days. If we ride on the fifth, we shall reach there by evening of the sixth. Aragorn fell silent. That will do, he said. Okay, uh, again, this is another one of those outlines where we see him kind of slipping in and out of dialogue, right? It, this is pretty sketchy as he's planning things out. Um, notice what kind of story this has become already, right? Um Aragorn's looking into the... The fact that Aragorn's looking into the stone, that's already a big change, right? And that's one of the changes that comes in in the 1944 to 1946 transition. Remember those outlines back at the end uh, of the 1944 period had Gandalf looking into the uh, the Palantir and then braining somebody with it, remember? Um, so now Aragorn has it. But it's not just a kind of a tactical change, right? Um... That by itself, that kind of the passing of the Palantir from Gandalf to Aragorn is already all by itself significant. Because remember the role, right? Remember the role that the looking into the Palantir had. The primary function of looking into the Palantir, as it developed um, in the old version of the story, was to reveal the looker to Sauron. Right. And that was going to be Gandalf. Remember, that was the whole dynamic with Gandalf throughout the battles was him holding back because he's like, I don't want to reveal myself. I don't want to give it away that I'm here and that I am who I am. Right. He was saving himself. I'm not quite sure what he was saving himself for, but he was wanting to preserve that secret. And then he looks into the Palantir because he really wants to see what's going on. And he's revealed to Sauron. And that's why he gets mad and frustrated and throws down the Palantir and brains a captain with it. Right. Um. So but again like the story of the having of the palantir was the one who looks into the palantir is going to reveal himself to Sauron and that revelation of who that person really is is going to be a big deal and that was all about gandalf cuz gandalf was a really huge had grown into a really huge deal the fact that the palantir is transferred here now when we return to it in 1946 from Gandalf to Aragorn already shows the whole framework of Aragorn's story is now different there was no real issue of like revealing the secret about who Aragorn is right i mean it's not that there was no element of that there at all but it was it was it was Gandalf you know, hiding Gandalf was the whole point now it's hiding Aragorn. It, it has placed Aragorn in the center of the, um, uh, of the... Remember how Gandalf... It was Gandalf's army in those outlines, right? It was Gandalf and his army uh, going, or just Gandalf goes to the Black Gate and presumably the rest of the army accompanies him, right? Um, now Aragorn is already sort of displacing Gandalf, or at least joining Gandalf, uh, at the center of things. Um, and again, that passing off of the Palantir seems like a really big deal. But apart from that, or I should say, in addition to that, right, notice the way, now that Aragorn is the one who has... Um, notice that uh, now that Aragorn is the one who has the Palantir, look at how he acts, right? He does not sleep, but becomes restless. Takes the Orthong Stone to the Tower of the Hornburg and looks in it. Um he looks into the Palantir and says immediately, notice there's no... In this outline, in this little sketchy outline, there's no immediate... He doesn't talk about seeing Sauron, right? He doesn't talk about being revealed to Sauron. That's still an important part of the story, but in this outline, the main thing is he gains information from the Palantir, right? And the information that he gains is about the army that's coming up from the south. But that... Although you could say that's what's been happening all along, right? There's been an army from the coming in from Minas Morgul, and one coming up from the south, and one coming down from the north. Um, that's been the battle plan of the enemy from the beginning of battle plans of the enemy here. Yes, but um, his discovery of it... First of all, notice how the whole context of that is different. The southward swing, the person, whether it was Aemir or Aragorn, who was going to lead a portion of Theoden's army, uh, originally over the mountain, passes down into the south to circle around, that was an offensive maneuver, right? We're going to catch the enemy by surprise, we're going to steal a march on them, and we're going to gain a strategic and tactical advantage by doing this, and that will help to turn the tide of things, um, at the battle, when we get there, um, it was it was an offensive maneuver. This is very much defensive. The army coming up from the south—they don't the city doesn't know about the army coming up from the south, right? This is a new and disturbing threat. Disturb is the word here, right? Um, this army is going to disturb councils. So, the southward swing is now no longer an aggressive offensive maneuver to steal a march on the enemy. Now it is a desperate expedient in order to try to grasp at the one slim possibility of fending off disaster, right? So already we can see, and this fits very clearly into the trajectory that we've seen, the armies of Minas Tirith have been fighting an increasingly defensive war as Tolkien has revised, right? We've seen that um, as they get backed into a... um uh uh as they get they get backed uh more and more you know deeply into the corner here um and so we can see that but so now notice as that happens right as now this becomes a desperate defensive maneuver uh to try to fend off that southern army and to protect the city uh from the sh- certain disaster that would be the arrival of that southern um fleet and army to the city it gains this whole element of this kind of mythic element right of of prophecy aragorn just knows right he just he has this sense there is something wrong he doesn't know what it is right he's restless and wants to look in the palantir and it, and thus is parallel to pippin who was restless and tossing and turning and wanted to look in the Palantir, right? Um, but of course it's very different. It's not sort of the the lure of his curiosity and, uh, and the draw of the Palantir. Um, this is, he has some kind of higher sense, right? He has some kind of foreboding, some kind of sort of vague insight or foresight that there is something that he needs to know that there is something that he needs to do and this leads him to take knowingly the radical step of looking into the orthanc stone knowing that it's he's going to be revealing himself to sauron right that's going to be a big deal but what he might learn in the palantir is worth it um because there is good like he knows the time is right to do this that it's imperative to do to risk that At this moment, Aragorn being in that position, being the one who destiny calls in these moments and has this awareness right, of what's going on, that's a very different Aragorn than we've seen. Aragorn is now—this is a different story, right? This is not just the guy coming down from the north— you know who needs to kind of patch up the historical issues with the people of Minas Tirith? Uh, I mean, he needs to kind of forgive them. He's he's still kind of salty towards the people of Minas Tirith uh, in the Council of Elrond. You'll remember. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, yeah. So he's he's um, he's now. This is the King of Destiny, right? Returning to his land and doing what you know, seeing the thing that needs to be done, which no one else can see and which certainly no one else can do, right? But he sees the, the one way in which his land can be saved. Um, again, he's acting like a king from beginning to end. Notice the emphasis on his weariness, right? How he is expending himself uh, for the sake of his people, for the sake of his kingdom. Uh, that's, uh, a big part of this from the very beginning, even that that detail, which, of course, is going to get even worse later, or at least the first time through. He still gets to sleep. Right. He he goes to sleep till evening after looking in the uh, in the stone. He doesn't even get to take a nap afterwards uh, in the published text, of course. Um, but his his vigilance, his foresight, his uh, and his weariness afterwards uh, are the things that we see emphasized about him. Uh, moving forward, so when the sons of Elrond arrive with the Rangers, and of course the Rangers are now not just part of this general gathering—we'd already seen that—but now they're coming down with specific instructions, right? Um, and uh, again, they're, they they also are—they come on the on the wings of destiny, right? Um, to Aragorn's words—this Christopher Tolkien explaining—to Chris, to Aragorn's words, but why they come, and how many they are, Halbarad shall tell us. Halbered replies, Thirty we are, and the brethren Elberon and Elbereth are among them. More of us could scarcely be found in these dwindling days, as you well know, and we had to gather in haste. We came because you summoned us. Is that not so?' To which Aragorn replies, "'Nay, save in wish.' The coming of the sons of Elrond with the rangers is referred to in the outline given on page 274. It is interesting to see that the names first given to them, Elberon and Elbereth, were originally those of the young sons of Dior Thingol's heir, the brothers of Elwing, who were murdered by the evil men of Midros' host in the attack on Doriath by the Feanorians. They were thus the great uncles of the sons of Elrond. But the names Elberon and Elbereth of Dior's sons had been replaced by Elrun and Eldun. Okay, so, um, yeah, Arthur, Elbereth kind of confuses me too, because I'm pretty sure we've already had Elbereth, haven't we? I mean, doesn't Gildor already talk about Elbereth? Um, I don't totally get Elbereth as a boy's name here, but it's obviously, this is not just like a late whim here right? Um, here he's, well, he's not recycling in the way that I've been using that term, right? Um, he's reusing, this is him, you know, we've talked about this many times too, right? How Tolkien never throws anything away. When he cuts something or changes something, he never just ditches the old thing. He's got that, that imaginary, you know, I imagine him having this, this drawer with, uh, you know, where he puts all of the names that he's rejected and all of the, the stuff. And and he, he, pulls things out, right? Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, so he was, um, uh, he has cut the names Elberon and Elbereth as Dior's sons. So this is not him recycling Dior's sons, this is him reusing those names that he cut from there, right? Hey, I've got another pair of brothers, right? Well, I've got a pair of Elven Brother names, right? I've got a pair of r- right, right here in my discard drawer, right? I'll pull those right out again. Remember, Halberd's name comes from that discard drawer. He's already used Halberd's name a couple times, um, but he's cut it, right? Hal Halberd, like all good rangers, was originally a horse, right? So uh, he so he cut Halberd as a, as 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 a horse name, but Halberd has been in the discard drawer ever since then, right? So he pulls it out and gives the name to the ranger here. Um that seems to be clearly what's happening with Elberon and Elbereth as the sons of Elrond. Um I can't explain Elbereth. I just can't. I don't get it. Maybe others get it in ways that I don't get it, but I don't get it. I I th- cuz I think that Elbereth has already been used as you know the name of uh Varda. Um <clears throat> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get, <laughs> I don't get it. I, I think a couple of people are making references to, uh, 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 <laughs> to, 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 to the boy named Sue. I uh, I don't know if it's like, the, yes, Kevin Aragorn was originally a horse's name as was Halberd. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I don't, um, I, again, I got nothing. I can't explain Elbereth. Um, it's kind of shocking to me that it was used back in the annals of Beleriand. Um, Yeah, I mean, he cites it back in Volume 4. I mean, back in the Shaping of Middle-Earth. Shaping of Middle-Earth, that puts it back in the early 30s. You know, so we're talking, we're more than a decade before this moment now, uh, when he first used those. Um, So... Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, like I said, I got nothing. He could have been named after her, but boom, They don't do that. I mean, elves don't do that. Men do it all the time, right? We see that the the in fact, you know, he uh, Tolkien is deliberately using a proliferation of Silmarillion names, right? Um, the Gondorians are being named deliberately after famous characters from the Silmarillion all over the place, right? From, uh, you know, from Mablung um, uh, and Denethor all the way down to Thalion, the father of the, you know, urchin in the street whom Pippin befriends. Um, So, yeah. uh, Arthur asks, do they ever name after Valar? I can't think of any examples. We see them naming after elves and men alike all the time. But yeah, I, I, James, exactly. The elves don't use Valar names. I, they don't name anybody after anybody. I mean, naming, um, naming children after others who are dead and gone in the past. That's a mortal perspective. Like that's a human thing. Elves wouldn't do that, right? I mean, you know, if you're an elf and you name your son Mablung, well, soon your son Mablung is going to meet the old Mablung, right? And that'll be awkward. Um, you know, it's like two people wearing the same dress to the party, so um, so yeah, I I, I don't I yeah, exactly, because they're not really gone, Boomful. Um, now, again, to the humans, they are. I mean, the odds of that you know, Ranger of Athelion, Mablung, meeting the old Mablung, really slim, right? Um, So that's fine. But elves, that's why elves don't do it, right? I mean, they're immortal. So, like, one name, one elf. uh, And, yeah, and naming after the Valar, Julie, I would have to think that that would be presumptuous, right? Um, Yeah, so... um, uh, Yeah... But Evan, it is kind of fun, isn't it? You know, Evan is pointing out how it's um, it's almost like you know, it's almost like an alter, you know, like in, in in an alternate universe, uh, the lost, you know, Elrond's lost uncles come back as his sons, right? And I mean, the, the, there is a kind of a fun element of that, uh, Evan. It's like let's give. Elberon and Elbereth a chance, right? That you know they they died young in the Silmarillion, and that was really tragic. So let's bring them back as, uh, uh, you know, sort of. Anyway, yeah, Um, uh, yeah, Um, so. (laughs) <laughs> Stephen says none of the Hobbits worry about half their relations being named Frodo. But the thing is, Stephen, is that only one of them's ever named Frodo at a time. It's just that it changes about, right? Uh, so yeah, it's it's tricky, right? And then you've got Odo. But anyway, so I, I, again, like I said, I don't I don't really know what to say about Elbereth. And if any, anybody has any theories about how the name Elbereth came to be used as an elf, or, you know, if, if there's, or if I'm wrong about the chronology, I think, if I'm remembering clearly, um, if I'm remembering clearly, Gildor was already talking about Elbereth in The Return of the Shadow, so I think that that name is already being used for Varda, which is, that, that's the thing to me that's making it so weird. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not, I'm not completely sure. Um, but anyhow, um, so But this was a fun a fun moment of again not recycling, but uh picking out of the discard pile. Okay. Um more on how Aragorn transforms here. Aragorn this is uh um Gimli's commentary, right? Aragorn is a company of his own now, said Gimli. He seems changed somewhat, and some dark care is on him. But he looks more like a king than Théoden himself. They are stout men and lordly. The riders look almost like boys beside them, for they are grim and worn for the most part, such as Aragorn was. But he seems changed somewhat, a kingly man if ever there was one, though some dark care or doubt sits on him. Okay. So both of these things... Um... Both of these things. Okay, good. Thank you. Matthew's confirming. Elbereth appears as a name of Varda in The Return of the Shadow. I thought that was the case. Um, Yeah, and that's why I I am so confused about that and have no explanation for it, frankly. Okay, anyway. um, Notice the two things. about. This is a classic example of what we see Tolkien doing so often when he has a concept and he's working through the concept and how he states it really flatly and explicitly. He spells it all out in the early drafts, and then as he revises, he pulls back and and does less telling and more showing. Um, That's a fairly uh, common trend in Tolkien's drafting. And so we see here, Gimli, of course, gets a speech much like this in the published text, but it doesn't say the really explicit things. You know, like, he seems changed, a kingly man if ever there was one. Um, This transformation to kingliness uh, is something that, you know, is, a is a a, a, a significant, um, object of comment, right, uh, for Gimli here. But notice the two changes that accompany Aragorn's metamorphosis into the, uh, the future king, right? Uh, first is his lordliness, right? Um, and that is connected with Aragorn having a company of his own, right? And that's kind of interesting to me. Once Gimli sees him as the leader of a company of men, right? Um, once he, once Gimli, it's Gimli seeing him in the context of uh, leading people that he rules then Gimli's like, wow, yeah, he does look kingly, right? He's not just this scruffy lane- ranger who goes along with us anymore, right? He, Yeah, I really see the whole king thing now, right? He looks more like a king than Theoden does. And it seems to be brought out by having the other company of people uh, around here. But, um, um, yeah, and Brianna, I was thinking the same thing. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Brianna says, I like how Tolkien will have a sudden character change but he doesn't want to do too much rewriting, so he just has the character change represented as a shift in another character's perception of the changed character. Yeah, so he doesn't go back and rewrite all of Aragorn to make him lordly and kingly from the very beginning, right? He just, he's decided, hey, Aragorn needs to be more kingly, so he has Gimli say, like, dang, you know what? He looks really kingly all of a sudden, right? Um, and it's fascinating how well that works, you know, these in this... Especially in this, this is the defining moment, right? The defining moment for Aragorn, and it is this moment because this is the moment, Brianna. Exactly as you say, this is the moment when Tolkien decided, "Doggone it, Aragorn's going to be kingly, right? He's going to be the he's going to be the destined king." Um, and so he gives him this moment, which is this defining moment for his destiny—the moment when he embraces his destiny and reveals himself to his companions to Sauron, to the readers, right? Where his uh, his lordliness is uncloaked, right? And that's really kind of awesome how Tolkien pulls that off. But notice the other thing that accompanies this. It's not just his authority. It's not just his lordliness or kingliness. It's also his dark care or doubt. It's his grimness. Um, some dark care is on him. These are the things that accompany Aragorn's kingliness, right? It is his sense of responsibility, his deeper and wider knowledge and understanding. He's not just one of the people who's going along with Gandalf anymore even when he was the leader of the people of Min- when when he was like the elected leader of the people of Minas Tirith in earlier projections he was still kind of going around with gandalf right gandalf was the one who was obviously in charge now aragorn is the one who foresees what needs to happen and who takes um and who takes the 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 step to do that tony that's a great parallel tony uh parallels this with uh thorin in laketown in the hobbit right Absolutely. When Thorin comes out of the barrel, which, and of course, in the first draft is the moment that his name changes from Gandalf to Thorin, um, when he steps forth and is, you know, Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thror, king under the mountain, proclaiming himself and being recognized, um, that's the moment where everything changes in the draft, right? Tolkien's own idea about Thorin has changed. Uh, and yeah, uh, it's reflected in a very similar way, just as Brianna was describing. He looks different uh, uh, all of a sudden no need to go back and change everything else. Uh, he makes it into a growing up moment for the character. Um, anyway, so, uh, but again, I think the correlation between dark care or doubt, uh, and lordliness is a really important one, right? That's what it means for Aragorn to be king is to be, you know, to step into this role is to step into, uh, to know more is to be more worried, right, is to is to have darker cares um, and more uncertainty and to embrace that responsibility and to take the quite drastic decision that he ends up having to take in order to try to avert it. Okay. You looked in the stone, said Gimli, amazed, awestruck, and rather alarmed. What did you tell him? What did I tell him, said Aragorn sternly, and his eyes glinted. That I had a rascal of a rebel dwarf here that I would exchange for a couple of good orcs, thank you. I thought I had the strength and the strength I had. I said naught to him and wrenched the stone from him to my own purpose. But he saw me, yes, and he saw me in other guise, maybe than you see me. If I have done ill, I have done ill, but I do not think so. To know that I lived and walked the earth was something of a blow to his heart. And certainly he will now hasten all his strokes, but they will be the less ripe. And then I learned much, for one thing, that there are yet other stones. One is at a wreck, and that is where we are going. Struck out, at the stone of Erech, men shall something be seen. Boy, I kind of wish we knew what that word was. Um... Yeah, Kingly maybe, but not very polite to his friends, said Stephen. Yeah, this is um uh this is harsh. Right? This is very harsh. Uh notice how um James, this is kind of like Hobbitry. I mean kind of like the you know, say mean things to your close friends because you're close friends with him kind of thing. It's the edge. there's an, a strong edge on this though. I mean this is A little over the top, Um, exchange for a couple of good orcs. Yikes! Um, Yeah, the kingly manner puts an edge on the hobbit style teasing. Margaret, I agree that the you remember in the published text this gets changed to you forget to whom you speak. Right, just kingly up to the hilt. Right, Um, stiff and kingly, and it does seem that in this first draft of this exchange, Tolkien is trying to have it both ways, right? That's how I read this anyway. He's trying to have him respond in that kind of hobbitry way, right? In that kind of teasing um, uh, uh, sort of hobbit style. Uh, And yet also be kingly and lordly in his manner, Um, especially in this moment when he is not just revealing what he did, but he's revealing like he's revealing himself it's like a meta self-revelation right he's in telling them about his revealing himself to Sauron he is revealing himself to them right Um, that I knew that the time was right for me to do this and I did this thing because I knew that and uh, that I was and I was strong enough and it was appropriate and uh, and I made the right decision. Um, so he needs to be, at, you know, operating at a very sort of high level of lordliness, right, in order to, you know, to, to pull that off. And I think that the the harshness, that, I mean, that sounds really, I feel bad for Gimli, right, exchange for a couple of good orcs. It sounds way harsher than it does, you know, when the hobbits are bantering. Um, it does sound... Um, Steven says it reminds uh, him of Gandalf's over-the-top talk to Sauron. Um, Evan was saying he sounds a bit too grumpy Gandalf-ish here. Yeah, Evan, it reminded me most of that. Remember those um, the initial exchanges between Gandalf and Legolas and Boromir up in the Pass of Carothrass, right? He was really... Gandalf was really harsh uh, with Legolas and Boromir. Um... And, and that that seems, again, I think we can see a similar thing there, right? When someone is speaking not, you know, sort of jokingly friend to friend, um, but is speaking in that kind of a tone of authority. Um, uh, and, um, you know, from the kind of stature that those characters had achieved, because Gandalf, even by the pass of Carathras, was already... Um, I mean, he wasn't anything like what he was, you know, what he has come to be uh here in, in book four and book five, but um but he's he's uh, had already grown significantly and was asserting himself. Um yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Tomas, I mean you're right that you know Tomas is thinking about Gandalf wanting to open the doors of Moria by uh knocking on them with Pippin's head Yeah. I don't know. Two things, I think. First, it's different with Gimli. There's a difference between Gimli and Pippin. Pippin is a kid. He's not of age yet. He's, you know, he's a tween. Um, The gap between Gandalf and Pippin is huge. So for Gandalf to get snarky with Pippin, to for Gandalf to put Pippin in his place, you know, even in a kind of a harsh-sounding way, like throw yourself in next time and then you'll be no further nu- nuisance, um, Pippin deserves it. And again, there's such a big gap between them that um, that it kind of works. Um Aragorn and Gimli were peers, right? I mean, yes, okay, Aragorn's now kingly, but that seems to me, that's one of the things that makes that moment feel awkward to me here in this version. Um, All of a sudden now Gandalf is kind of speaking down to Gimli uh, in ways, again, which work when it's Gandalf doing it to Pippin, but don't work for me when it's Aragorn doing it to Gimli, right? Um, Remember that not only does. Aragorn in the published text just kind of say a thing on doesn't try to joke around with him at all, right? You forget to whom you speak, but he also then speaks kind of semi-apologetically after that, right? Um, it's almost like you know he snaps and then regrets it uh, in the published text, whereas we don't get the, we don't get he doesn't he doesn't back off from it at all here, right? Um, but again, what I think we're seeing happening is exactly. The opening up of that um, of that gap, right? Legolas and, and, and uh, ever since the White Rider, right? Legolas and, and Gimli and Aragorn have been like, you know, the three companions um, and Aemir has kind of been accepted as a peer and they all, you know, they fought together all four of them, fought together at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, so again, they're all kind of peers. Now, Aragorn has gotten a promotion, right? Um, And I think one of the things that we're seeing here is a kind of assertion of that, you know, that now it's not a question now um, of just the three of them hanging out as peers. Aragorn is definitely their leader, right? The leader of Gimli and Legolas. um, And he can kind of pull rank on them. And that's what we see him do in the published texts still, right? So I think that we... This is one of the things... Again, it's still awkward here. He's he's not ironed it out yet. But I think it's one of the effects of promoting Aragorn in that way here. But anyway, I don't want to lose the... I don't want to overlook the other kind of shocking statement made here, right? Just kind of tossed in at the end of this section. For my money, the most mind-blowing thing... In these entire two chapters, right? The most mind-blowing thing in all of tonight's class. The stone of Erech was a palantir. The stone of Erech is a palantir. That's the stone in question. It's not a random rock, right? Not a random, smooth, funny, strange Numenorean rock. It's a palantir. And that's why he's going. He has a pragmatic reason for going to Erech, right? Right? One of the things that he has... So he has learned two things that we know of that he says in the Palantir, right? One is about that army coming up from the south. The second is that there are other Palantir out there and he's going to go get another one, right? And that is the stone of Erech. So, okay. Then we get the prophecy. Halbered bears this message. Out of the mountain shall they come, their tryst keeping, at the stone of Erech their horn shall blow. When hope is dead and the kings are sleeping and darkness lies on the world below, three lords shall come from the three kindreds, from the north at need by the paths of the dead. Elf lord, dwarf lord, and lord for and one shall wear a crown on head, and that is an old rhyme of Gondor which none have understood, but I think I perceive somewhat of its sense now. To the stone of Erech, by the paths of the dead, he said, rising. Who will come with me? Okay. And, um... Yeah. Oh, so, Bruce, yes, the seven stars and seven stones line was there early. Do we know at this point where the various stones are? He was shifting that around. You may remember when we were talking about the Palantir chapter uh, like a month and a half ago or so, um with the development of the Palantir, he was originally going to put one at Helm's Deep, right? There were fewer of them in the North, basically. So there, more of them were available to be down in the South. So I suspect he was, he was going to just shift one. Erech was not listed in the original list of places where the Palantiri were. Um, but one was at the Hornburg, so he could doubtless shift the Hornburg one down because that one, uh, already seems to be not there already. Um, yeah, st- several people. Stephen was thinking, Jennifer was thinking of it. Uh, um. In uh in the Lord of the Rings Online, the Stone of Erech is is enormous. It's like fifteen feet in diameter, right? Or in radius. It's it's huge. It's absolutely. It's like uh, as big as an elephant, essentially. Um, you can see it from miles away on the top of the hill, and it looks really cool. Um, and so, yeah, Stephen is saying it. You know, that would be like uh, the IMAX version of the Palantir if it were one. Um, but, um, of course, that would not be the case. And the Stone of Iraq is never actually that big in its descriptions in the book. Um, but, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yes, Tony, back to the point that you had just made before. It makes a thousand times more sense, right? The Stone of Erech by itself. I mean, I remember from early days, like when I was in high school reading The Lord of the Rings, I remember kind of being puzzled by the Stone of Erech, right? I mean, just when you read it in the story, it's awesome. Right. I mean, I love the Stone of Erech and the scene at that. I mean, the, I f- found the Stone of Erech very numinous from the beginning in my early childhood readings of the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's really cool. But when I, you know, when I'm in high school and I'm sitting and thinking about it, right, and I'm imagining Isildur bringing, the, even before, you know, the Stone of Erech in Lotro existed and is like larger than a ship, right? So it obviously couldn't be transported by ship. Um, but anyway, um, even just the size that it's, it's like four feet in diameter, right? Uh, or so in, in the published text possible to transport by ship, but I could never understand, you know, like, I'm like, why? Why? I mean, you're a silder, right? You're packing to leave. Um, You're standing there, you know, in the docks at Romena in Numenor saying, okay, the storm is coming. We've got to stand off from the coast. We get, you know, be ready. Everybody take every, only take what's most important because we can't take everything with us. Right. So let's just bring the most important things on the ship. And you're, you're Isildur and you're like, okay, what I really need is that 400 pound stone right there. That smooth polished, um, you know like 4 feet across thing you're a silder so you're big enough to carry it right like you can just put this thing on your on your cuz you've got Thus, right if you're a silder i didn't have a problem with him carrying it um i just didn't understand why like again it's cool when he sets it up but i mean who thinks to pack that right why would you do that what was the point uh of um what was the point of the the, of bringing the rock with him on the boat. It always kind of bothered me, um, you know, why he would, again, it's one of those things, which again, once you're there, it's awesome. But thinking back from a Numenorian perspective, I couldn't get it. Um, but Tony, oh man, like the idea, knowing that the stone of Erech begins its life as a Palantir. Well, of course obviously right now it's a no brainer if it's a palantir of course you're bringing it with you right um so that makes uh makes all kinds of uh all kinds of of sense um maybe it was Ballast, bruce but i got to imagine bruce with all the stuff that they're packing right i mean you've got the like the worldly possessions of a bunch of people. Like, I can't imagine ballast was a problem in their boat. Um, uh, but anyway, okay. Um, back to the poem, though. The poem is very different. What do we get from the poem? First of all, who is keeping their tryst? Who's keeping a tryst? What's the tryst referred to in the first line? Now, be careful, because this is a trick question. Right? It's a trick question. It's a trick question because I don't think the answer is the Oathbreakers. Or at least, I see no evidence of Oathbreakers here. Out of the mountain... Shall they come their tryst keeping? Who are they? Who the they is used twice in that first line. What's the antecedent of that pronoun? At the stone of Erech, their horns shall blow. So we get the same they, presumably same they in line two. It's a long reveal, but absolutely. Yes. Bruce and James, I agree with you. It's the three lords. Katriana, absolutely, yes. Out of the mountain shall they come, their tryst keeping who? At the stone of a wreck, their horn shall blow. Who's blowing the horn? When hope is dead, and the kings are sleeping, and darkness lies on the world below, colon, three lords shall come. That That's the center of the poem, right? That's, like, physically the center of the poem, that's this three lords shall come. That's it. That's the, if you want a summary of this poem, there's your summary. Three lords shall come. That's what the prophecy is. The rest of it is all details and, and local color, right? The prophecy is three lords shall come. Um, where shall they come? To the stone of wreck? What shall they do when they get there? They're going to blow their horn. When are they going to come? When hope is dead and the kings are sleeping and darkness lies on the world below. Uh, what, where, sh- you know? What lords are we talking about? The lords shall come from the three kindreds. Where shall they come from? From the north. At need. How will they get there? By the paths of the dead. Wait. When you say three kindreds, you mean yes, elf lord, dwarf lord, and lord forwandred. And one shall wear a crown on head. Just a little piece of extra information about one of the lords, right? But this whole prophecy is about the three lords coming. We don't get any indication of what they're going to do. Most tantalizingly in the in context, right, that is in the context of what we know is going to come later, is about the horn blowing. It is prophesied that they're going to come. It is to Erech, at the Stone of Erech, that they're going to come. And when they get there, they're going to blow a horn. Or more, maybe more than one horn. Right, their horn shall blow. Sounds like they have one collective horn. These three lords, right? They're gonna blow their horn at the stone of Erech. What's gonna happen then? No idea. At least the prophecy doesn't have any idea. Um, it doesn't say what's gonna happen. Just that the three lords are coming, and it's presumably gonna be a big deal. Right? Um. So yes, three lords, one of which will become a king right? One shall wear a crown on head. Um, It doesn't mean, that's not necessarily a prerequisite, right? Um, One of them shall wear a crown on head. So, uh, that sounds like a further prophecy, right? Return of the King, right? Um, So, the Sleeping Kings. When hope is dead, and the kings are sleeping, and darkness lies on the world below. The Sleeping Kings, that's the line of Gondor, right? The kings are sleeping because the line of kings has apparently failed, but of course the line of kings isn't dead, it's just sleeping and is about to be awakened. It's almost as if maybe the blowing of the horns is actually going to awaken the line of the sleeping kings, which again, not oath breakers, right? Um, this is, I think, it, the way that this goes from the sleeping kings down to one shall wear a crown on head, I think it's talking about the line of Gondor, I think it's talking about... um. The this is a return of the king prophecy, um. Yeah. So. Um, uh Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, Evan. Yeah. These these three kings are not from the Orient. They're uh, they're from the north, right? They, 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 don't, they, they don't come out of the east. Um, but. Um, yeah, Stephen. I agree. So far here, the paths of the dead are just the route they're taking, not necessarily meaning that the dead themselves have anything to do with it. Yes, I don't see a glimpse now. Of course, you can see things. You can see there are openings, right, uh, through which the prophecies of the oathbreakers can are going to come in eventually. We know with where it's headed, um, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't see any indication of it, um, and that the important. So notice. When Aragorn has ascended in kingliness, right, at this transformation point of Aragorn, merely his advent is the big deal. Personally, I think that when he's blowing the horn at the Stone of Erech, the Mountaineers are going to join him. Remember the Mountaineers, right? We had the business about the Mountaineers. He's going to be rallying the people of Gondor. They're going to flock to him when he blows his horn at the Stone of Erech. Um, so, and they're going to then go down and they're going to descend upon the southern host and it's going to be it's going to be great. Um yeah. <laughs> Tony I hadn't thought of that. Tony says this is kind of bad news for Legolas, right? Uh you know, I guess he's never going to succeed to his father's throne he's not going to wear a crown. Only one of them are going to wear a crown on their head. Sorry Legolas always a prince, always a crown prince, never a king. But I guess that's what happens when your dad's immortal, right? I mean, it's um Being the heir apparent just doesn't mean the same thing for elves as it does for humans. You know, it just, it may never be your turn. Um, Yeah. That's just the way, it's the way it is. Um, How is Gimli a lord? Well, you know, Jennifer, uh, you know, (laughs) it's, it's, Lord is a general term, you know. Um, he's the son of the glowin', right? So that's something, isn't it? Um, and he is of the line of Durin. That's also true, James. Yeah, the son of one of Thorin's companions. He's He's got high enough standing. He qualifies. Uh, I agree, Jennifer. It's a little bit of a stretch, you know, and... Uh, But it's interesting, though, that for as much as Tolkien is leaning heavily on the return of the king thing, right, and on Aragorn's destiny in this poem—this poem is essentially all about Aragorn's destiny and him taking up the mantle of kingship in Gondor as a whole, um, right—it's very interesting to me that Tolkien makes the center of this, three lords shall come, right— this union of Elf Lord, Dwarf Lord, and Lord Four Wondred. Wonderful, wonderful word. Um he uh um that it's the union of the three of them, right? It's it's this alliance of Elf Lord, Dwarf Lord, and returning king that is the centerpiece of the prophecy. You know, you can say, well, this is just how the rightful King shall be known. You know, the one who comes with an elf Lord and a dwarf Lord. Um, but at the same time, the poem really gives all three of them equal billing until the very last line, when we kind of promote the one of them up because he's shall wear a crown on his head, but three Lords shall come from the three kindreds, elf Lord, dwarf Lord, and Lord for wandred. It's, it's all, they're treated pretty much equally there. Um, and so that's kind of, um, uh, it's kind of interesting to me that although he's elevating Aragorn, he doesn't make this poem just about Aragorn. Um, he makes it about the three of them, and therefore makes it so imperative that Gimli. I I love that you know it, it makes that last question to me a little bit comical. Who will come with me besides Legolas and Gimli? Who are obviously coming whether they like it or not, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, let's keep going. So, more about this stone of Erech. Uh, so, this is a, a, a later draft of him telling about what he saw in the Palantir. And I learned much. For one thing, that there are other stones yet preserved in this ancient land. One is at Erech, and thither we are going, to the stone of Erech, if we can find and dare the Paths of the Dead. The Paths of the Dead, said Gimli? That has a fell name. Where does it lie? I do not know yet," said Aragorn, "but I know much old lore of these lands, and I have learned much myself in many journeys, and I have a guess." Right. So, he's got a hunch that the that the, that the paths of the dead are in Dunharrow. Uh which of course, fortunately, is going to turn out to be to be correct. Um Tony and uh James were both remembering, of course, later on Gimli is going to be the lord of the Goodering Caves, right? So, um he will be a lord sort of in his own right. True enough. True enough. I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to call Gimli a lord. Um, but I agree, Jennifer, it, it is a little bit... It is the one that is kind of counterintuitive, slightly. But anyway. Um, okay. So, uh, oh, wait, Brianna was thinking that too. Anyway, okay, sorry. Um. He's still going... So the Stone of Erech is still a Palantir, and it is still the destination. Now, I don't know why he wants to go there. I don't think I get that. If any of you have any ideas, tell me, because I don't get it. I don't get why Gimli... or not Gimli. I'm thinking of Dwarf Lords here. Um, I don't get why Aragorn says the goal of our journey is the Palantir at Erech. Why does he need another? He's got a Palantir, right? And he's seized it for his own use so that he can see what's going on far away. Is there like some tactical usage that he can make of the Palantir at Erech? I don't really know. I don't really understand. Um, why it is that he wants to go to the... because there seems to be a practical purpose. It's not just the trysting point, right? It's not just the logical meeting spot, which it's later going to be. That's why they go to the Stone of Erech in the published text, right? Because it's a trysting place for the oath Oathbreakers. Um, it's an important point, historically speaking. Here, this is practical, right? Um, there's a Palantir, and we're going to the Palantir. That does not make it sound like just a convenient, um, a convenient, you know, point, um, Michelle. I could certainly see that he would want to, why he would want to secure it, you know, so that Sauron couldn't get it. But, but I can't think that that's very urgent, right? Would it be? I mean, he's got to beat off that southern army, but. Sauron getting yet another Palantir seems like, you know, I would have to think it would be like the least of his concerns. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. James Stevens says, so he can throw it at someone's head, obviously. Right, yes. They're very effective projectile weapons. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you get, like, an automatic critical hit with, uh, uh, Palantir, so yeah, it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. (laughs) That's, That's the best suggestion I've heard. Best suggestion I've heard. Um... Jennifer, yeah, maybe the Palantiri... Well, okay. In the original conception, they were very limited in range. Maybe that one has a better range. Maybe there are things that he can see from that one that he couldn't see from the Orthanc stone. He can obviously see as far as the south of Gondor, where the army's invading. Maybe in order to... Maybe with the Erech stone, he can see all the way over into Mordor or something. I don't... Um, it's possible. It's possible. Um, <laughs> yes, several of you are t- making video game jokes about quest lines and, uh, fetch quests and, uh, 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 you know, deed achievements, uh, for collecting all of them and things. Um, I've got to think that there's a better explanation <laughs> than that. Um, and Jennifer, your suggestion is the best one that I've heard as as far as serious suggestions are concerned. Um, maybe this does show that Tolkien is still imagining the range of the Palantiri to be very restricted. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um <laughs> Steven said he was still imagining that he's still thinking about the question of throwing it at people's heads. So when I said maybe that one has better range, he took that uh, in a different way. Yeah, exactly. He can huck the stone of a wreck much further than he could huck the uh, <laughs> the orthong stone. That's totally it. That's totally it. Um, but yeah, no, exactly, uh, so Bruce says maybe specific stones could see specific things or specific or sort of are attuned to specific regions, yeah, that kind of thing um that seems that seems likely. I had thought that Tolkien had dropped that, but again, maybe this is evidence that he hasn't um yeah. Can anyone other than Aragorn look into it? James, interesting. Yeah, could if he has two of them, then he could set up two-way conversations, right? You know, they, they could use them to coordinate. That could be a tactical advantage. Um maybe even worth a side trip, right? Or to you know, to make that a destination. Um anyway, cool. The mystery of the paths of the dead is interesting, right? So the paths of the dead. We recall this is one of those things which just emerges in 1946, right? Dunharrow had already shifted from being a party cave to being the creepy place where nobody, no living person has gone for hundreds of years, right? Um, with some deep mystery inside, whether it was like an Indiana Jones-style artifact in the middle or what, it was unclear what that was, Um now it's the paths of the dead. So now it's, you know, we've, we, he's combined the two things. He had the highly dangerous, uh, pass over the mountains, which was almost, which was so likely to lead in, lead to death in trying to pass it that Theoden was already lamenting a. Amir like he was a corpse already when a. Amir said he wanted to do it. So we're combining the highly dangerous mountain pass concept with the dark, mysterious, and ghostly, um, you know, ancient temple slash burial place. Um, uh, those two concepts are not coming together and we have the path of the dead, the paths of the dead. Uh, interesting that he was making this sort of one step more mysterious. Like it's the paths of the dead aren't even really clearly a thing. Nobody knows exactly where they are. Right. Um, so that's us And then he's got to guess, but again, he's the king, right? Of course he guesses correctly. Okay, um again, from that same later draft here um of his words to Gimli, the hasty stroke goes often astray, said Aragorn, and his counsels will be disturbed. I think it's really interesting that same phrase is being used again, Tolkien is so conservative of his own words, right, so he used the idea of the councils being disturbed in the earlier draft there it was the councils of gondor being disturbed by the coming of the southern army right now it's sauron's councils that are going to be disturbed by aragorn's revelation of himself in the in the palantir right Anyway, okay. See, my friends, when I had mastered the stone, I learned many things. A grave peril I saw coming unlooked for upon Gondor from the south, that will draw off great strength from the defense of Minas Tirith, and there are other movements in the north. But now he will hesitate, doubting whether the heir of Isildur hath that which Isildur took from him, and thinking that he must win or lose all before the gates of the city. If so, that is well, as well as an evil case may be." This is another example of Tolkien's spelling out explicitly what is only implied um, in the published text, right? By showing myself to him, I have led him to believe that I have the ring, right? Aragorn is saying that much more explicitly here than he is. I think that he's still thinking exactly that in the text, and I think that the published text suggests this very clearly, um, but never states it straight out like this. Um, but notice, notice the conclusion that Aragorn is drawing here. Right, it's not just that this will help to protect Frodo because he's drawing his attention. Not only is he drawing his attention out from his land, but even if there's any rumors of, even if they have come across the tracks of Frodo or whatever, um, he, Sauron, is going to be far less likely to suspect that Frodo is carrying the ring when he has such good reason to believe that Aragorn has the ring, right? So, you know, I've totally got the ring way over here, is one of the things that Aragorn is doing. But notice the conclusion that he draws. The conclusion that he draws is that this will give a strategic advantage in the war, As well, Um, instead of having to deal with three armies in separate places, Sauron is going to combine all of his armies, right? He's going to bring them all together. He's going to draw them all towards Minas Tirith, right? Because that's where they can, and which means instead of having for the good guys to have to fight separate battles on three different fronts, they're going to concentrate all of the enemy's attack on their strongest defensive position. That's a good thing, right? Um, and gives them an advantage that is, Aragorn and his company and whomever he's able to get to assist them, the mountaineers or whatever, right? Um, because they're not just meeting the Southern Army in battle anymore; they're like ambushing the Southern troops as the Southern troops are headed up towards Minas Tirith, um, which is uh, uh, which is where Sauron's going to be concentrating his force. So it's interesting to me that Tolkien seems to be thinking, uh, sort of st- strategically, as far as the war is concerned, or I should say, Tolkien has Aragorn thinking strategically as far as the war is concerned as well. Okay. Second version of the poem. Bid Aragorn remember the paths of the dead, for thus spoke Malbeth the seer. Now we don't just get an unnamed prophecy from Old Gondor, some you know a rhyme that is remembered, but nobody understands what it means anymore. Now we get a specific prophecy by a specific dude, Malbeth the seer, who has a quite different prophecy. When the land is dark where the kings sleep, and long the shadow in the east is grown the oath-breakers their tryst shall keep at the stone of erech shall a horn be blown the forgotten people shall their oath fulfill who shall summon them whose be the horn for none may come there against their will the heir of him to whom the oath was sworn out of the north shall he come dark ways shall he tread he shall come to erech by the paths of the dead Okay. Um, It's almost a sonnet. Not quite. It's a few lines short still, but uh, uh, the structure is is very sort of sonnet-like. It's missing a quatrain, but... um, Okay. Notice now, no more three lords, right? It's not about the three lords anymore. It's not even about the one lord anymore right now the prophecy is all about the oath breakers the oath breakers are finally here we had the seed of it before right the lords were going to come from the north and they were going to come to the stone of ireach and they were going to blow their horn and some good thing unspecified was going to happen right um now we have it's now the blowing of that horn that's the central thing, right? That's the central moment. Um, what shall happen? What is the, what, what is the primary action? Again, we, st- we, we have a slow reveal. When the land is dark where the kings sleep, and the long shadow in the east is grown, what shall happen then? The oath-breakers their tryst shall keep. At the stone of wreck shall a horn be blown. Um, so we've got the big subject, right? The oath-breakers will keep their tryst. The tryst is now emphatically the tryst of the oath breakers, right? The oath breakers have a tryst to keep. That's the whole point, right? With whom shall they keep it, right? With the one who blows the horn. Somebody's going to blow a horn at the stone of Erech, and that will be the signal for the keeping of the tryst of the oath breakers. The forgotten people shall their oath fulfill. That line right, is the thing that gives you the heart of the prophecy. Just as three lords shall come is the heart of the of the old prophecy, the forgotten people shall their oath fulfill is the center of this prophecy. Who shall summon them? Whose be the horn? For none may come there against their will. Right, so the uh, the forgotten people, so you have this, uh, notice how he's creating in this prophecy a um, uh, a, a a kind of paradox, right? Um, the The only one who can summon the oathbreakers to keep their tryst, right? The only one who can get the forgotten people to fulfill their oath, is one who can come to the Stone of Iraq and blow the horn. But the people, the forgotten people, won't let anyone in there, right? So you have to get to the stone of Iraq and blow the horn in order to summon the oath breakers, but nobody can do that. Right. Um, none may come there against their will. So we have through the oath breakers, this central fulfillment of prophecy moment, not for the three of them, but for Aragorn. Right. So um, the prophecy is not all about Aragorn. It's all about the oath breakers. And yet, there's this, like, Aragorn-shaped hole in the middle of the prophecy, right? Oh, There's only one who can make uh, the Oathbreakers fulfill their oath. Um, the heir of him to whom the oath was sworn, right? That's what has to happen. And so we end with Aragorn, right? Out of the north shall he come, dark ways shall he tread, he shall come to Erech by the paths of the dead. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, good, good. Um, So, now it's all come together. So, the Paths of the Dead predate the Oathbreakers, right? It's not called the Paths of the Dead because of the Oathbreakers at first, nor is the Horn at Erech originally the horn to summon the Oathbreakers, there, it was just a rallying cry originally. Now, it is this fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Well, it was before too, um. But now the blowing of the horn itself is the signal that the that this foretold time shall come. Right. Um. Kind of awesome to see this develop. And now, of course, when we return to Sayid and arriving in Dunharrow and telling the story of the Paths in the, uh, uh, of the Dead, now we finally get Baldur and Brego, right? and the old stories. Only legend of old days has any report to make, said Théoden, but if these ancient tales are to be believed, then the door in Dwimmerberg in leads to a secret way that goes under the mountains. But none have dared ever to explore it, since Baldur, son of Bregu, dared to pass the door, and came never back. Folk say that dead men, out of something years, guard the way, and will suffer none to come to their secret halls. But at whiles they may be seen, rushing out like shadows down the stony road. Then the men of Harrowdale shut fast their doors, and shroud their windows, and are afraid. But seldom do the dead come forth, and only at times of great peril." This is such a cool example of I mean put this together with that progression of um passages that we were looking at last time how Dunharrow comes to be Dunharrow right um how uh his description of Dunharrow uh begins to uh uh to change and evolve and become more and more like the the Dunharrow that we know but from the beginning, like from early stages of that, back when Dunhera was still the party cave, right? When there was no association with the dead, um, there was association from, from the start with an ancient culture, which is now lost. But, um, you know, so it was mysterious. <clears throat> but we had these monoliths and the Pukulmen and all these other things, and we didn't. And he's—they come in first— but there's like, there's no explanation, right? He doesn't know why they're there. Why are there these like bizarre standing stones lining the path leading up to the door in the Dwimmerberg, right? Who knows, right? But now all of a sudden, now we've got the Oathbreaker. So that's why. He knew it was haunted, right? He realized it wasn't a party cave, that it was a haunted cave instead of a party cave. Um, uh, so he figured that out. But he didn't know what haunted it or why, right? And now, now he does, and as soon as he does, everything else fits, right? The um, the the, at wiles they may be seen rushing out like shadows down the stony road, the 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 stones, right? The standing stones, mark the road that the dead come down, right? Um, you know, the Standing Stones are like this link between Harrowdale and the Paths of the Dead. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really neat to see him discover stuff, right? Oh, so that's why there were monoliths, you know, uh, Standing Stones uh, alongside the road. Yeah, it all makes sense now. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tomás is saying, we were discussing if this army of the dead are ghosts or more like zombies. Well? Shadows. Yeah, more like ghosts than zombies. Rushing out like shadows and down the road. Um, so, yeah, I don't think they're... Yeah, more like wraiths, Stephen. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Evan, great question. We have no, there has as yet been zero emergence of the Druidine, of the, the Um There's no Han Borei yet, no glimpse of the wild men on the journey of the Rohirrim, uh, nor any connection with the Pukul men. In fact, in this version, remember, this old man, the old man that they... Uh, um that they find guarding the doors, right? When uh when when Brago uh first discovers the paths of the dead, you know, the door in the Dwimber in the Dwimmerberg. Um it says specifically that the dude, the guy, who speaks to them and tells them that the way is shut, looks just like one of the Pukelmen. Um so yeah, there's there's no Oh uh, yeah, we we don't get even one single drum beat in the hill, Stephen. Absolutely not. Um, so so yes. So everything that's said about the druidine in unfinished tales. Not on the radar screen yet. No, no hints at that yet, either in association with Dunharrow or anywhere else. Frankly, they don't seem to exist yet. Okay. Theoden smiled. Mary said, I, I sh- "'You shouldn't leave me behind, right? "'I swore to be your esquire. "'I should come along with you.' Theoden smiled. "'You shall ride before me on Snowmane, "'rather than wander in the plains of Rohan. "'Go now and see what the armorers have prepared for you.' "'It was the only request that Aragorn made,' said Eowyn, "'and it has been granted.' With that she led him from the pavilion to a booth at some distance among the lodgings of the king's guard, and there a man brought out to her a small helm, and a coat of mail, and a shield like to the one that had been given to Gimli. No mail we had to fit you, nor time to forge a hauberk for you, she said, but here is a short jerkin of leather, and a shield, and a short spear. Take them, and bear them to good fortune. But now I have something to look to. Farewell. But we shall meet again, my heart foretells, thou and I, Mariadok. So, Eowyn no longer going with the king. That is to say, no longer openly. Remember in the, in the earlier drafts, Eowyn says, hey, the shield maidens and I should come. And he was like, okay, like rally the shield maidens and let's go, right? So Eowyn was openly riding with him to battle where she was going to die. That's been her job for a long time, uh, dying in battle ever since she ceased to be Aragorn's future husband uh, and possibly helping him with his claim to the kingship in the very early drafts, early and material um, in the Treason of Isengard. Um, now she is uh, she's, she's, uh, a tragic um, uh, casualty of war. She's not going anymore. Apparently the answer to her is no, but Mary still gets the thumb up. I sh- you shall ride before me on snowmane. That's going to happen. Um, which means, remember, that we already had the people in Gondor back in chapter one of book five, in the new draft of chapter one of book five, hoping that the Rohirrim were going to be bearing uh, uh, halflings in front of them on their saddles as they came down. Right. We were going to get one. Right. The king was going to come with his hobbit esquire in front of him on his horse. So there we go. And he was going to be he uh, the hobbit in question was going to be uh, was going to have a spear, too, which is kind of fun. Um, so, yeah. So Mary gets to ride openly, which is interesting. But we get Eowyn in disguise now. And not only do we get Eowyn in disguise, we get Eowyn seeking death. We get Durnhelm. The Dernhelm phenomenon has now officially entered into the story. This seems to be deepening the... You know, so we have the tragedy at the Battle of Pelennor Field, but now being deepened by her despair and her seeking of death. But Merry is going to get his wish. And notice, it was the only request that Aragorn made, and it has been granted. What? That they prepare armor for him? Or that he should ride... With Théoden, um, you know, make sure you bring along Merry seems to be uh, seems to be sort of the point, right? The the request what Aragorn was hoping to see happen, right? Um, so that uh, that's clearly part of the plan. Um, okay, this is this is it. This is the last slide. Notice what's missing here. Here's the end of the chapter. They passed down the road beside the snowborn, and through the hamlets of upborn and under Harrow, where many sad faces looked from dark doors. And so the great ride to the east began, with which the songs of Rohan were busy for many lives of men thereafter. Sounds like a good ending of a chapter, right? Good way to end a chapter, good sentence to end with? With which the songs of Rohan were busy for many lives of men thereafter. What's missing? Here the text L ends, and here the typescript M ends also. What's missing? Yeah, James says, I wonder what those songs are like. Yeah, wouldn't it be good to, to know what those, uh, what those songs are like? Yeah. That's, of course, what's missing. In the published text, we segue directly from that sentence, with which the songs of Rohan were busy for many lives thereafter, to the verse, to the song itself, from Dark Dunharrow in the dim morning, with Thane and Captain, Rhode Thingol's son. Um, He gets the poem. What interested me is that he didn't do that at first, right? He mentions that there are going to be songs of Rohan, his actually writing one of these songs and including it in the text comes in later. And that's interesting to me, especially because of all of the songs in The Lord of the Rings, that one is one of the most conspicuous. Most conspicuous because it is one of the only ones... Is it the only one? Let me finish my sentence, and then I'll think more about it. I think it might be the only song which is put in out of chronological sequence. You could say that of the the, the, the Lament after the Battle of Pellinor Field, too, I think. Both of those are kind of similar. Um, that is by the content of the songs, they were explicitly written well after the events of the story. Most of the songs in, you know, the songs and poems that are included in the Lord of the Rings, at least, um, sort of pretend to have been, uh, written at the time, right? To have been a spontaneous utterance of the principles of the story at the time. Um, yeah, Snowman's epitaph. Yeah, Stephen, that's true. Uh Snowman's epitaph is is posthumous, right? Or you know, after the fact. Um certainly posthumous to, as most epitaphs are, right? Um but anyway, yeah, uh But anyway, that 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 poem as as I say, I find it very conspicuous. More conspicuous even than the mounds of Mundburg poem after the Battle of Pelennor Field because of this that song is like one big spoiler not just in the fact that it contains spoilers which it kind of does but also the fact of it is a spoiler in the context of the Lord of the Rings story Theoden setting out from Dunharrow, not really a big deal, right? Just always, it's not obvious at the time that it's a huge deal. Certainly not obvious, for instance, that, like, when he set off, uh, when he set off from Edoras to go to Helm's Deep, right, you know, to go to to find, uh, uh, you know, the in fight against Saruman, that was a, an obviously climactic moment, right where he having been healed from his darkness right comes out and 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 boldly rides you know gathers his people and rides forth uh to challenge Saruman. that's kind of a huge deal Theoden sets out from Dunharrow to go to Edoras and then head out to um you know head out to Gondor it's not obvious that that's a big moment like for the history books but it is obvious after we come in with the song, right? Um, once we get From Dark Dunharrow in the dim morning with Thane and Captain Road son, this is obviously a huge deal, right? He is riding forth. Um, uh, he's riding forth into history, right? This is his moment. Like, you know, as soon as we get the first line of the poem, we know he's going to die. Right. This is like the action of a heroic dead king. Um, and this is how you would this is how you would write. This is the kind of song you write about somebody who sets off uh, to go to enter the battle, which is going to claim his life. Right. It's just like again the, whole, the fact of the song's existence is itself a spoiler, um, much more so than the sentence itself. And so the great ride to the east with which so- the songs of Rohan were busy for many lives of men. Uh, thereafter um he already has that gesture right towards future history he's already breaking the frame historically uh of the narrative in that moment but later on he is going to um he's going to double down on this right and actually write the song and the song is going to is going to do even more of that so um I'm just kind of interested in the fact that that song wasn't his first impulse. Um, That he goes back and adds the song later on. Um, I don't know exactly what conclusions I would draw from that yet. um, Or what conclusions I would have drawn had that song been an initial spontaneous impulse at this point. So I don't know what my conclusions are yet, but I'm just kind of interested in in the data point that it did not flow naturally. He didn't go there. Um, Yeah. Anyway, okay. All right. That's it. i to let you guys go now. Um, Sorry, I know it's late, but I started... It's less late than I started, so I still... We still went for a little bit less than two hours. Um, Anyway, thank you, everybody, for uh, joining me tonight. Uh, And I look back... uh, Next week is... Fine. Yeah. So I will see you guys again next week as we will continue our journey here through uh, book five and we will see new things. Maybe we'll learn more about the Stone of Erech next time. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Have a good night and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.